John 17, as we're at this morning, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. I am thrilled to be jumping back into our ongoing series called Love and Trouble. We've been studying the Gospel of John verse by verse. We will now be in the Gospel of John until Christmas, and when we get to Christmas, you guys, we'll be done with the Gospel of John. Can you believe that? We've worked our way all the way through it. Uh, It's been an incredible study. I've learned a ton. I've been challenged a ton, and this morning's text is no different. One of the things we're doing as a community here is we're, uh, we're walking through this with these John journals. We've got, we, we purchased these John journals. We've got one for every one of you. So whether you've been here for a while or whether you're new, um, if you don't have a copy of the John journal, which has the Gospel of John uh, and then a, a journal page on each facing page, you can grab one today at Guest Central or in the lobby. But we want to make sure each and every one of you have one of those. We're kind of, we're kind of recording what God has said to us through his text together, and we're sharing that journey as well. So make sure you grab one of those. But here we are this morning in John 17. We see a marked turn in John 17. We've been talking together over the last many months about the fact that after John 12, Jesus' public ministry ends. John 13, 14, 15, and 16 begins uh, Jesus' sort of intimate interaction with his disciples. It's private instruction, not public instruction. He started to share things with them to prepare them for the fact that he will die, that he will rise again, that he will ascend. He's preparing them for the, the responsibility that they will have to advance the kingdom once he ascends back to heaven and, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. But here in 17, we see another bit of a turn. There's still intimacy in 17, but Jesus has concluded his remarks in 16 to his disciples, and now what we see in 17 is he shifts his attention from talking to the disciples to talking to his Father. In John chapter 17, we see the longest recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus. We wouldn't say this is the longest prayer he ever prayed. It's simply the longest one we have recorded. We wouldn't say this is even indicative of all of his prayers, but it is beautiful that we have it here, that Jesus turns his attention to Abba. I think it's worth noting and it's worth sort of understanding that he, he prays this prayer to his father. And that's a unique title. He, he, he refers to God as his father, which isn't something we see in the Old Testament that the people did. It's something that Jesus did. Refers to God as his father. In fact, Jesus does that in all of his 21 prayers except for one. There's one prayer, the prayer of Jesus when he cries out to God from the cross. That's the only time he doesn't use father or Abba or Patre as his address here. So he's showing us an intimacy with God. He's showing this intimacy that happens between the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He prays this prayer to his Father, and and it sort of breaks up into three different sections. We see him pray for himself in the first section. That's what we'll study this morning, the first five verses. He prays for his disciples in the middle section. And then he prays for those who will believe through, through the disciples' ministry. That includes us. He prays for us at the end of John 17, which is pretty cool. We find ourselves in that section. We'll be there in two weeks. But this morning I want to look at the first five verses as Jesus turns his attention to the Father and as he prays what some have called the high priestly prayer. I think it's probably more accurate to call this a prayer of consecration, a prayer of dedication. We see Jesus recognizing that the cross is within 24 hours, right? The culmination of all he came to do taking the sin of the world upon himself and dying in their place, Jesus prays this prayer because he has one enduring concern. My message title this morning is Christ's Enduring Concern. Let's read these five verses together. It says, When Jesus had spoken those word, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
I love the idea that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven, right? It's just one little side note here. It, it kind of bugged me the first couple of times I read it because I thought, God isn't up, right? When we think directionally, we don't think about God being up or heaven being up, and yet we kind of do, but, but heaven isn't up and God isn't up. We believe that God is omnipresent. So why here does Jesus lift up his eyes to heaven? And there's actually a really interesting insight here. Jesus lifts his eyes up, not because God is any more up than he is to the side or down or around. God is everywhere. Jesus lifts his eyes up and prays up to, to submit himself. It's a posture of subservience. It's a posture that says, I am below and he is above. When we sing songs of praise, and sometimes you'll see the followers of Jesus lift up their hands to God, right? We sing about lifting up our hands. We're not lifting up our hands because God is any more up than he is down or around. We're lifting up our hands because it puts us in a posture of being beneath. Does that make sense? We are below. We're moving ourselves lower. Jesus lifts up his eyes, not because that's where God is, but to show his humility and to posture himself in a position of subservience to the Father. It says he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. We've seen that all through the Gospel of John. Remember all the way back at the wedding at Cana when Jesus' mother says, hey, could you do something for the groom? They don't have enough wine. And Jesus says there at the beginning of John, it's not my time. My hour hasn't come. In John chapter 7, when people wanted to come and arrest him, John tells us they couldn't arrest him because his hour hadn't come. A couple of months ago when we were studying in John chapter 12, after the Greeks come to him, right? The Greeks come to worship. It says Jesus then looked at those around him and said, what? The hour has come. Here we are. We're at the hour. This is the hour that Jesus has come for. And so he addresses that and recognizes it before the Father. He lifts up his eyes and says the hour has come. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that that hour was tied to his sacrifice. That what he came to do was to lay himself down. So Jesus says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. With the cross looming, with his death imminent, right? With his torture just around the corner, Jesus is preoccupied, but not with the pain. Not with the beard being torn out. Not with the shame. Not with the humiliation. He's not preoccupied with the cross. With the cross looming... Jesus is preoccupied with one thing. He is preoccupied with the glory of God. And that's important for us this morning, right? Because you and I go through all kinds of obstacles, right? We deal with all kinds of pain. There is all kinds of suffering. You may be facing some awful things coming ahead this week. You may have some things on the horizon that you're very stressed out about. Doctor's appointments and treatments and all kinds of things. But in the midst of the oncoming pain that he knows is coming, it's the very hour for which he came to the earth... Jesus is preoccupied. His mind is focused on God's glory. I remember uh, there was a, when we were living at Hume Lake, the very first house that we lived in at Hume Lake, we worked at the Christian camp there for a while, and the very first house we lived in was this little house up in the subdivision there, and it wasn't on the camp power grid. So anytime the power went out, which was all the time, I had to hike outside in the snow, and I had to pull start this generator so that we could have our heaters working, and we could have our refrigerator running and all that stuff, Right? 
So I'd go outside and I'd start this generator and it worked fine. It wasn't, it wasn't the best, but it was at least a way to stay warm and not die in the winter. We're living in this little cabin. And uh, then at some point my wife said, you know, we should probably put carbon monoxide alarms in our house because all houses should have those, whatever. So uh, we do, we buy a couple of carbon monoxide alarms and we put them on the, you know, plug them into the outlets and immediately they're going off, right? They won't, and I'm like, these are defective. These carbon monoxide alarms are broken, right? We need to replace the batteries. Replace the batteries. They're going crazy again. I'm like, what, what is the deal with our house? And so I call Hume and I said uh, to the maintenance department, I said, I need somebody to come up and take a more accurate reading because my house, uh, my carbon monoxide alarms are going a little bit crazy and I'm not really sure what to, what to think. And so they, they bring a guy up. He comes up with a, like a Geiger counter thing, you know, and I felt like E.T.'s family in that movie where they're like the astronauts are walking through. So he's walking through and uh, he gets all done and he's like, oh yeah, the, the carbon monoxide levels in your house are uh, absolutely too high. It's very, very dangerous levels of carbon monoxide here. And I'm like, oh, well, what does that mean? And he goes, well, it means, you know, you have to be really careful because if you're not paying attention, uh, you, you might just go to sleep one night and die while you're sleeping, you know? <laughs> and I was like, well... Well, what, can we, is there something we can do about that? And he's like, no, not really, not really, no. <laughs> he's like, the problem is they put that generator right outside of your bedroom window, and so that when that generator's running, it's just pumping carbon monoxide into your house, which then just kind of sits here. And so the reality is, uh, you're just going to have to be, if you start feeling sleepy, you just need to leave the house. You know, and I'm like, what? I feel sleepy every night. Doesn't everybody feel, what am I supposed to do? And so we start processing this and I'm like, well, either we don't use the generator and then we freeze to death and all our food gets rotten or we use the generator and just run the risk that one of these nights we're going to go to heaven, you know? But then we start processing it and I realized that all the EMTs and the medical people at Hume, the fire department, those are all like fellow employees. These are like people I work with at Hume Lake. And I started thinking, I don't want my boss, Johnny, to come up here to my house and find my dead body in my underwear. Well, that would be embarrassing. So I started wearing jeans and a t-shirt to bed every night. <laughs> I'm not joking at all. I started wearing jeans and a t-shirt to bed every night because I was just, I thought, well, I'm just going to die one of these weeks. And when Johnny comes up, I just want him to see me looking my best, you know? <laughs> in anticipation of my demise, I was preoccupied with fashion, Right? In anticipation of Jesus' painful and torturous death, he is preoccupied with God's glory. G. Campbell Morgan says, The deepest passion of Christ was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. I think that's a really interesting quote, because a lot of times we think, well, Jesus came because he just loved us so much. That's true. Jesus does love us so much. Jesus came to set an example for what life could be like. That's true. But the greatest preoccupation of the Lord Jesus was not the saving of mankind or the setting of a decent example. It wasn't the teaching of some great, you know, sort of uh, lovely moral truths. The greatest preoccupation of Jesus was the glory of God. And the saving of mankind was an end to that means. The teaching of those moral truths was an end to that means. The setting an example of what a godly life can look like was an end to the means of glory, excuse me, a means to the end of glorifying God, right? It was a way to get there. The preoccupation of Jesus was about the glory of God. He says the hour has come there in this first section. The hour has come, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. It's all about the glory of God. The reason why that's important is that that same preoccupation should drive and direct our lives, 
You and I should be preoccupied with the glory of God. Should we live moral lives? Absolutely. Should we care for our neighbors? Absolutely. Should we steward this planet? I love the fact that young people around the world have rallied up this week, right, to say we've got to take care of our planet. That's what God called Christians to do, care about our planet, right? I love the fact that we care about these things, but we don't care about them as an end to themselves. We care about them as a way to bring glory to God, to glorify God, loving our neighbors, living a moral life, studying the scriptures, serving one another. All of it is serving the glory of God. Now, when we talk about glorification, we need to time out and talk, what, like, what do we even mean by it? What do we mean when we say glorify God or the glorification of God? Jesus is preoccupied preoccupied with the glorification of God, but we have to know what that means. Because in Christian circles too, a lot of times we talk about the glory of God and we think we know what each other means, but we don't really, right? Here's something that you need to understand about glorification, right? God, just who he is, is glorious, right? By the nature of who he is, he is glorious, he is beautiful, he is holy, he is just, he is perfect, he is unlike anything else or anyone else to the ultimate degree, to the nth degree, right? So think about beauty. God is beauty to the ultimate degree. God is justice to the ultimate degree. He is holiness to the ultimate degree. He is perfection to the ultimate degree. What that means is that we can't add, we never add to the glory of God, right? Sometimes people say, oh, we really just want to increase God's glory. No, we don't do that because God is ultimately glorious. God, just who he is, you, you can't add anything to his ultimate glory. Does that make sense? When we talk about glorification, when you and I talk about the fact that our chief end is to glorify God, what we're talking about is not increasing his glory, which is impossible, but an increasing understanding or increasing revelation of his ultimate glory. Does that make sense? What we do in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes is we sort of peel back the curtain, right? Not, Not this curtain, but we peel back the curtain and increasingly and expandingly reveal the truth about the ultimate glory of God as he is. So there's never a time that we're contributing something new to the glory of God or that we're revealing something no one ever discovered before. It's that in our worship and in our lives, what we're doing is we're remembering and declaring. When we sing praises, what we're doing is we're declaring truths about who God is. We're opening up the curtain, and that declaration is both a declaration to our own hearts, it's a declaration to God in heaven that we see him and that we recognize he is glorious, and it's also a declaration to our fellow man. It's a declaration to the people next to us, to the right and the left, to say, I want you to know more about who this God is. His glory cannot be increased, only increasingly revealed. Glorification is the expanding revelation of who God is. The Father then is glorifying the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. All of that is increasing revelation. God is glorified or revealed in unique ways in the incarnation, right? When Jesus comes to earth in a body, he reveals things about God that have always been true, but that mankind couldn't see or understand until Jesus came in the incarnation. When Jesus goes to the cross and he dies on behalf of mankind, he's revealing things in increasing and expanding measure about God's character, about God's justice, about his compassion, about his mercy that have always been true, but mankind couldn't see until the Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross. Does that make sense? That's how glorification works. It's how it works for the Lord Jesus, and it's how it works for us too. Our lives are about opening up people's eyes to who God is, about opening up our own eyes 
to who God is. When I, I grew up in Arizona, and uh, to be honest with you, whenever I looked this direction, and I, I didn't know that Fullerton existed growing up in Phoenix, but I just sort of thought about this whole area like Los Angeles, right? It all seemed like Los Angeles. And uh, as a guy who grew up in Phoenix, I just thought Los Angeles was gross, right? When I thought about Los Angeles, it just seemed like smog and gang violence and traffic. And, you know, it's just like I, I, I just couldn't imagine why anybody would ever want to live over here at all. And then uh, in 2009, God moved us to Long Beach, right? So then all of a sudden I'm living in L.A. County. And I'm living in a place I never would have expected that I would live. A place that I kind of I knew from a distance, but I didn't know very well. And the very first year that we lived in Long Beach, we had some friends who said, hey, every year on New Year's Eve day, we go and we do a walking tour in L.A. Would you want to go with us? And I was like, uh, will we get killed by gangs? And they were like, probably not. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we'll go. So we, because I had my jeans and my t-shirt on. I wasn't worried about dying. And uh, so we go, we go on this walking tour with this friend. She's become a dear friend. We do this walking tour every year now. On New Year's Eve day, we've been going for the last, whatever, 20 years. 17 years. I can't do math, you guys. I'm trying to preach. Um, We've been going on this walking tour, but as we walked around LA with her, we would turn a corner and she'd be like, oh, you have to see this architecture. This was built by the architect something, something, something. And you just look at the scroll work here. And we're going to go down these steps into the basement. This is where the first Academy Awards was held. And he looked at this picture and she kind of took us through LA. And what happened? She didn't create something new in Los Angeles that day. What she did was she opened my eyes to what was already true about Los Angeles. Right? She didn't, she didn't contribute anything herself. Los Angeles is what it is. But what she did is she took us like a tour guide and she walked us through and she said, there are things about your impression of LA that are not true. I want you to see it. I want you to know it. I want you to fall in love with it. And as we walked around that day, I thought, I love this city. I love, and then the more I lived there and the more we've explored it, and we've explored it a lot, the more I love it. What happened? By opening up my eyes to what was already true about LA, she, she sort of caught me, right? Like I sort of caught what was in her, and I then wanted to increase my understanding of the city. I wanted to find those dark corners. I wanted to find those hidden stairways. I wanted to find those weird lakes that show up in the middle of nowhere, right? I wanted to go and do that investigation myself. The very same thing happens with mankind with regard to God. We don't add anything to who he is. But when we declare his praises and when we increasingly reveal his glory in the ultimate degree, it opens up other people's minds to where they also go, you know what? I want to know more about this Jesus. I don't understand why God would come in a body and die on a cross. I want to know more about that. I want to lean into that as well. And it catches on. What we're doing here on a Sunday is we are increasingly revealing the existing glory of God, which we will continue to reveal in increasing measure through all of eternity. I know sometimes we sort of wonder what heaven will be like. Heaven is going to all be about increasingly revealing the, the unknowable, the, the unknowable love of Christ. Ephesians talks about the fact that when Jesus is rooted and established in us, that we have power together with the saints, right? Together with the saints to increasingly comprehend or increasingly apprehend the unknowable love of God in its height and width and depth and length. What is that talking about? It's talking about the way in which God is glorified through us, that our eyes are increasingly open to who he is. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify, glorify your son, that the Son may glorify you. God revealing Christ to mankind so that in that revelation, Christ is revealing to the world truths about God that have always been true. 
And that glorification happens in a couple of ways, right? It happens in a couple of ways. It says here, Jesus, Jesus says, Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus talks about glorification, specifically in this passage, happening in two different ways. The first one is the giving of eternal life. He says, I have glorified you. I will continue to glorify you. As you glorify yourself in me, I will glorify you. And one of the primary ways in which God has glorified God, Christ has glorified God, is through the giving of eternal life. Now, I want you to notice, and if you have your John journal this morning, you can start underlining throughout this whole text how many times it talks about giving and things that were given and things that God gave, right? Jesus says, you gave me authority over all flesh. We see that echoed in Matthew 28 when Jesus uh, in in the Great Commission says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus says, based on the authority that you've given to me, And the people that you've given to me, which we studied not too many weeks ago, right, when Jesus talked about the fact that all that the Father has given him, he will in no way lose, right? He says, through your authority, I have given eternal life to those that you've given me. I love the harmony. I love the cooperation. I love the way in which that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are working arm in arm. God the Father gives the Son authority and God the Father gives the Son potential believers and Jesus then gives to those believers eternal life. They're working together. We see that revealed, uh, and just to kind of go back and look at a couple of texts, it says in John chapter 6 verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In John 10, 28, you may remember he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, I have glorified you, and I will continue to glorify you by expanding the revelation of who you are to mankind through my death on the cross, through the giving of eternal life. And then he goes on to define eternal life, which I think is interesting, right? Because if we were there and we heard Jesus say, I have given them eternal life, you probably would go, yeah, I know what that is, right? If Jesus said, no, 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 hold on, let me define for you what eternal life is, you would go, I don't, I don't need you to define it for me. I know what eternal life is. It's streets of gold, right? It's going to heaven where there's no pain and there's no suffering and there's no tears and we're happy all the time. And maybe there are harps and potentially angels and a machine that makes pizza whenever we want it, right? I know what heaven is. Jesus takes the time here in his high priestly prayer, here in this consecration prayer, he takes the time to define eternal life. Now, I'm not saying this morning that that this prayer is a teaching moment for Jesus, but in some ways, there's a reason why this one is revealed and all of the other ones aren't really. Like the other lengthy prayers, we have this one, why? Because there are things that Jesus is revealing, ways in which he's glorifying God, even in the text of this prayer. Jesus says, one of the ways in which I've glorified you is by giving them eternal life. And before we have the ability to go, I know what that means, it means going to heaven, he goes, this is eternal life, and he defines it. Let's look at the way Jesus defines eternal life here. He says in verse three, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life not as praying a prayer, not as living a moral life, not as going to heaven and walking on streets of gold, not on eating at a banquet table, right? He describes eternal life how? Knowing God. Knowing God. 
That's the definition of eternal life. By the way, Jesus' definition of eternal life is not about something that happens when you die. It's not about that something, something that happens in the future when your heart stops beating and your lungs stop breathing. Jesus says he's given them eternal life now. These are people to whom he has revealed God now. He has, he has helped them to know who God is. The word know there, by the way, is a word that expresses throughout the Bible intimacy of a, of a deep level. In fact, when I was in Bible college, one, like... When you're in Bible college, especially at a conservative Baptist school, there's no, like, there's no real dirty jokes. The dirtiest joke you get at conservative Baptist Bible college is this one. People go, hey, do you, know, uh, do you know Professor Smith? And then the dirty Bible college student will go, not in the biblical sense. <laughs> get it? Do you know him? Not in the, no? Yeah? Okay, thanks. Thanks for that. No? <laughs> not in the biblical sense. And the implication there is not sexually, Right? Why? Because in the scripture, the idea of knowing, as we see it here, it implies a very deep and personal intimacy. It's not about intellectual understanding. When Jesus says this is eternal life, knowing God, he's not saying being able to win at Bible trivia or being able to answer all the right questions about God or being able to recite theological truths about God. He's talking about knowing him in an intimate way. Jesus says this is eternal life that you know him. Well, why is that profound? It's profound because you and I, apart from Christ, cannot know him. We cannot know him. The Bible teaches that you and I, as human beings, are separated from God because he is life, because he is holy, because he is just. Psalms 5 says the wicked can't dwell in God's presence. We're separated from him because of our sin. Sin being any failure to glorify God in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. Romans 3 says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of the purpose for which we were created. Romans chapter 6 says the wages or the consequence of that sin is death, that spiritual death, separated from God in eternity. We can't know him. We can't know him because we are broken, each and every one of us, broken in different ways, but equally broken. We cannot know God in and of ourselves. We cannot know God because of our efforts. We cannot know God because of how hard we work or how much we study or the places we go. It's not about pilgrimage. It's not about experience. We cannot know God on our own. And so it's profound that Jesus says, what I give to people is eternal life. And what I mean by eternal life is knowing God. Because you see, what Jesus is doing here and the work he is fulfilling is the work of redeeming broken mankind, redeeming broken sinners, you and I. Jesus comes to the earth with a very specific purpose, to glorify his Father by rescuing his people. Jesus comes to the earth and he takes our sin upon himself. It says in Isaiah that the iniquity or the wickedness of us all was placed on him. Jesus lives a perfect life. He sets a perfect example of what life can be. And in so doing, he himself is an acceptable substitute, an acceptable sacrifice Jesus takes our sin, your sin and mine, upon himself. He dies on the cross, not because he deserved that, not because he was tricked. Jesus isn't a martyr. He wasn't murdered. Jesus sacrificed himself. He went to the cross. He wasn't put on the cross. He went there. Jesus went there to pay the penalty for my sin, my brokenness, my wickedness, and yours. He died on the cross because I deserve that. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. We celebrate on Easter, and in so doing, he not only has paid the penalty for our sin, but he's proven that he has power over sin and death. Jesus then extends by his grace that very same resurrection life to those of us who are spiritually dead in our sin. 
resurrection life, redemption, restoration. What does Jesus do? He is the bridge between God and man. He is our redeemer. He reconciles God to man through his death and resurrection. Jesus makes it possible for us to know him. And that knowledge, that knowledge of God is eternal life. Now, does it go on into eternity? Absolutely. Will we walk on streets of gold? Absolutely. Will there be pain? No, there will not. Will there be tears? No. Will there be the pizza machine? I'm not sure, right? But the reality is that Jesus says, I have glorified you by giving them eternal life, and this eternal life is knowing Christ. Church, this morning, the question for you is not are you a a good moral person, not do you go to Sunday school every week, not have you memorized Bible verses, but do you know God? Because what we're doing here is not about life modification. We're not just trying to improve our lives in some healthy ways. We're not a social club. I've already said that this morning. What we're doing here this morning is knowing God and that knowledge of God is only possible through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if there is not a point in time in your life where you have turned from your sin and turned to Christ, then I implore you this morning, will you turn to Jesus and be saved from sin and death? And that might sound old-fashioned to you. That might sound like an old-timey evangelist who rides from town to town on a horse and says, come and be saved. Listen, if you have not put your faith in Christ, if there is not a point in time where you have said, I turn from my sin and I turn to Christ, will you save me from my sin and myself? Then you cannot know God. And if you do not know God, you do not have life. Will you put your faith in him? Jesus says, I've glorified you by giving them eternal life. And this eternal life is knowing you. Eternal life is not about moral behavior, going to heaven, happiness, love, peace, freedom from pain, acquired intellect. It includes those things, but those things are all a byproduct. They aren't, they aren't eternal life at its core. It's not something that happens when you die. It's about knowing God now. Jesus says it's, not, it's, it's knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I love that sentness. And his sentence is tied to the second way in which he glorifies God. Verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. First, he glorifies God through the giving of eternal life, the knowledge of God through his death and resurrection. But secondly, he glorifies God through the completion of the work that God assigned him. The completion of the work that God assigned him. It's interesting to think about the work of Jesus. Jesus didn't do everything he could have, right? Jesus never went to America. He never went to Africa. He didn't see Rome, right? He, he didn't travel exclusively. He kind of stayed in this one little region. He didn't heal all the sick people. He didn't teach every message he could have taught. He didn't even expand all of the theology that he could have taught us about God and his messages. His messengers did that on his behalf later. What did Jesus do? He didn't do everything. And I think that's profound and important for us this morning because some of us feel like we got to do everything, Right? We feel like we got to go 100 miles an hour and we got to do everything. We got to be everywhere. You know, even as I talk about volunteering or serving in our church, there are some of you who feel like you got to do it all and you don't. What do you have to do? Follow the example of the Lord Jesus and do the thing that God has assigned to you. And that's going to be different than what God has assigned to me. If you haven't been paying attention to what God has gifted you for and what God has called you to, the time has come to sit up a little bit straighter and to prayerfully consider how the Holy Spirit is leading you uniquely because my revelation of Christ through my gifts, through my talents and my abilities, through my uh, following the things that God has called me to do is incomplete without you. 
Right? I can only reveal a certain dimension and a certain aspect of the reality of who God is. I can glorify God in particular ways based on where I've been and what I know and what my gifts are and what my calling is. But in order for us to more fully reveal Christ and to glorify him, we have to all lean into our callings. We have to all lean into our giftings. We have to all be obedient to fulfill the things that God has asked us to do. And they're not all the same. When I get up here on a Sunday and I say, hey, some of you, we need, we need some help in special needs. Some of you absolutely should not do that. Right? Because you're not gifted there. You're not called to that. But there are some of you sitting in this room that are absolutely gifted and absolutely called. And you're sitting on your keisters and you need to get moving. Because you're gifted and called. Because you're appointed. Because God has assigned you things that are perfect for you. And yet some of us aren't busy trying to do everything some of us are preoccupied with doing nothing. And we come to church as an experience. We come to church as an entertainment. We come to church as a place to get a little bit of social interaction and hopefully to hear a couple of bad Bible college sex jokes, right? But God has called us to move. Jesus said, I have glorified you by doing the thing that you assigned to me. What did God assign to him? To reveal God, to glorify God in a distinctly different way than the pre-incarnation, right? God is revealed by Christ in the flesh in ways that he was not revealed in eternity prior to that, right? God is revealed in unique ways through the death of Christ on the cross. I mean, I'll tell you what, sometimes we think about the glorification of God as being beautiful, right? As being lovely, as being shiny and bright. Can I tell you there is nothing lovely or beautiful or shiny and bright about the cross of Christ. It's bloody and sweaty and stinky and gross and shameful and humiliating. And yet what Jesus does as he hangs on that cross is reveals to mankind a truth about the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God that they could not have seen apart from the dirt and the filth and the blood and the stink. God may not call you to something shiny and glorious and beautiful. He might call you to something stinky and hard. But it gives us an opportunity to expandingly reveal the truth of who God is. Jesus finishes this, this first section. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow. Jesus here does what he's done all through the Gospel of John. He looks through the, per- per- the present circumstance to what will happen beyond that, right? We've seen him do that again and again. He looks through the woman at the well's need for water to her need for spiritual life, right? Here, Jesus looks through the cross, through the pain, through the stink to his eventual glorification again, his return to the glory that he had before the creation of the world. If you have any question about whether or not Jesus claimed to be God, about whether or not Jesus was born and then just sort of lived a life and he was just a regular man like you and I, make no mistake, not only do the New Testament writers affirm in Colossians 1 that Jesus created the world, John 1 says in the beginning the word was there already, but here Jesus says, I'm anxious and anticipatory of returning to the glory I had with you Before the world existed. If you were a disciple standing in hearing shot of that prayer, you would have been like, this is more than just a great rabbi, right? This is more than just a great teacher. We're standing in the presence of God. For him to have existed in glory before the creation of the world can only mean one thing. Jesus is excited about returning to that glory. He's excited about glorifying God. 
not just through his death and resurrection, but through his ascension and his ongoing intercession for us. He continues to intercede for us this morning. As we close today, I I would just ask you a couple of questions. Is the glory of God your chief preoccupation? Is it your chief concern? Because it doesn't matter what your vocation, it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how much money you have, everything that you are gifted for and called to has the opportunity and the potential, right, redemptive potential to expandingly reveal a truth about God. Doesn't matter if you work at McDonald's or you work at a law firm, you have the opportunity to expandingly reveal the truth about God. But is that something you're focused on? Or is maybe your pain, or maybe your circumstances, or maybe the difficulty that you're going through, does it blind you to the glory of God? How does your life reveal Christ? We've been talking about that over the last five weeks, that our lives are meant to reveal Christ, that Christ is revealed to us, and then Christ is revealed in us so that Christ can be revealed by us. So how is Christ revealed in your life? Or is it possible that the, that the impression of Christ you've been painting is a false one? That actually when you tell people you're a Christian and then they look at your life, they actually see a, a false picture of what Jesus is like. For the record, that's not glorification, right? That's blasphemy. Is your life blasphemous? Would it be better if you didn't tell people you're a Christian? Our lives are meant to reveal Christ. We're meant to glorify him in an ongoing and expanding way. And the third question is this. Has Christ been revealed to you? Do you know him? Because the fact of the matter is there are some of you in this room this morning who are spiritually dead right where you sit. And that's not me being judgy. That's just exactly where I was before the king of creation took me out of the darkness into his light. If you're here this morning and you're still dead in your sin, brokenness, lost, did you know that you can know Christ? Did you know that you can know God, that your relationship with him can be restored? I and all of us who are followers of Jesus have been appointed as ambassadors of a message of reconciliation, that God is not holding men's sins against them, but that he extends to them by his grace, resurrection life. If you don't know Jesus, I would say to you this morning, my friends, don't wait another second. Would you call out to him and say, I'm turning from my sin and my brokenness and I'm turning to you. Will you save me from sin and death? Will you heal me? I want to know you. And he will transform you just like that. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a passion for your glory, a passion for your expanding revelation. You are glorious and beautiful and perfect and holy and true to the ultimate degree. And it is a privilege for us to show that, to put it on display, to increasingly understand it and to declare it, to witness it, and to to know it in our guts. God, we thank you that through Christ we can know you. We thank you for the glorification of the Father that Jesus has accomplished, and we thank you for the ways in which he invites us to glorify you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.